<laughs> the Mike Tamano Happening. Well, so far, the feedback has been good. And, you know, you look at the stats from a podcast and you see that people are listening all over the world. So I thought I would just choose a random at number or a number at random, which makes a little bit more sense. Let's see if anybody answers this random number. Hello. Hi, I just dialed 15 numbers. Where am I calling, sir? Calling Serbia. Serbia? Yeah. What part Bravo. of Serbia? Uh, Belgrade. Belgrade. And what is your name? Lazar. Lazar. And that's a nice Serbian name. Lazar, let me ask you a question. Have you listened to any podcasts recently? Yes. Anyone in particular that you enjoy? I'm Mike Tomano. Really? <laughs> yes. The Mike Tomano happening. You listen? I have heard, yes. And what were your favorite episodes? I don't mean to quiz you to make sure you're not lying, but... Uh, Jackie the Joke Man. Oh, Jackie the Joke Man. Do you guys get the? Did you get the Howard Stern show in Serbia? And uh, and internet, yes. Oh my goodness! And and so Lazar from Serbia. Um, you're not going to believe this. Are you, are you sitting down? Yes. This is Mike Tomano, the host of the Mike Tomano Happening, and you're going to be part of the program. Oh my goodness! Isn't that awesome? Very good. I wish I had like a coffee mug or a t-shirt or something to send you, but we're on a tight budget. Oh. I know, it sucks. But I'll tell you this. Thank you. Thank you. All right, peace and love. And happiness. Life-affirming, positive vibe, radiating, open mind, illuminating, always fascinating sixth episode of the Mike Tamano Happening. Hey, please subscribe to this program wherever you get your podcast. Tell your friends. We guarantee, at the very least, an interesting conversation with interesting people. I was talking to my daughter the other day about uh, people who love cats exclusively or people who love dogs exclusively. Oh, I'm a cat person. Oh, I'm a dog person. You know, I'm tired of the uh, divisiveness on that issue. I say if you prefer cats, you're a canine-phobe. If you prefer dogs, you're a feline-phobe. There, I've said it. Was I being too political right out of the box? Back in February of 2019, my lovely bride Denise and I attended a concert at a great club in Chicago called Reggie's. The headline act was off-Broadway. They're a Midwestern power-pop band that has... uh, Got a special place in my heart. They were a local sensation back in the late 70s. They got signed to a major label, had some regional national airplay and success with a couple of singles. They played my high school a couple of times in the early 80s. Let me just say, if you haven't heard them and you're a fan of the Beatles, the Raspberries, Cheap Trick, Dwight Twilley, uh, the Knack, that kind of stuff, you'll love them. And also, we're going to run part two of the uh, Donnie V interview. This was a second uh, chat that Donnie and I had, and I'm not sure that Donnie was aware that we were recording uh, for a podcast. Uh, I think he may have thought I was just blowing a call into a bullshit for a while, and I, I, well, (laughs) stick around for that. 
But going back to the show that I saw in 2019 of Off-Broadway, on this particular night, the opening act was a ska punk band called Dead Freddy. And my wife and I were blown away by just how wonderful they were. And the folks who uh, showed up early were treated to this great energetic performance by Dead Freddy. So we're going to have the lead singer and occasional accordion player, the great Donatus Ramanaskis. He's going to be with us today from Dead Freddy. And so strap yourself in and get ready for the Mike Tamano Happening, Episode 6. with us from Dead Freddy. And as I was saying, I saw you guys at Reggie open for uh, Off-Broadway. First of all, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. You are a uh, Southside guy, Marquette Park area. And tell us about the original uh, band, Dead Freddy. Well, uh, the original band, uh, two of us from the original lineup, uh, we've been lifelong friends uh, myself and uh, Vinus Alexa um, the other guys in the band they're also from the Marquette Park neighborhood I think that you need to have a little bit of context here is that uh, we were all the children first generation children of immigrants that came from Lithuania after the second world war and uh, there were other Lithuanian communities in Chicago at the time but um a large number of them settled in the Marquette Park neighborhood. And when they did that, you know, they established uh, the Nativity EVM Catholic Parish. They established uh, a Saturday Lithuanian school. They established uh, a youth center in Gage Park. Uh, They started choirs and folk dance groups and uh, any other number of sports clubs. And it was all because uh, our parents all pretty much came in bulk from Lithuania after the Second World War. So we were drawn into that whole cultural uh, thing that they created. And so a lot of our friends were of Lithuanian descent because we were involved in all these same groups. Not that we all went to the same schools Monday through Friday, but on weekends it was all about doing Lithuanian things. And so... <laughs> Doing Lithuanian things. That could be the name of your next album. It could be. You, know, <laughs> you, you could say we were what, what I call practicing Lithuanians. We okay. Belong, we belong to all these organizations. And that was really how a lot of our, our childhood friendships uh, became what they became. So there, there came a time, um, you know, we're getting through high school, starting to get into college, and, you know, we'd run the gamut of being in all these Lithuanian organizations, and we decided, well, we still still want to do something else outside of, uh, not totally outside, we'd still be definitely involved in the Lithuanian community, but something above and beyond that. And having, you know, been in folk dance groups and in choirs and singing Lithuanian songs every Saturday, we had some uh, musical experience. And so my friend Vinus said, you know, why don't just you and I get together? We'll, we'll do some, some stuff on the back porch and uh, see how it goes. So we probably learned from late, well, summer of 78 through sometimes summer of 79, 
run a bunch of covers, you know, like 19, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 different covers. And then he goes, you know, I started writing some songs. So, so he said, would you try singing my, uh, my originals? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I said, sure. And so then we, we kind of transitioned from doing just all strictly covers to learning some of his original songs. And once we had uh, some material put together like that, uh, we started going, well, let's, let's find a couple other guys to, to, to join up with us and let's actually put a band together. So we had mutual friends who talked to their friends and we ended up uh, that way, uh, meeting up with uh, Al Ploplis and his brother Vitas Ploplis and he ended up becoming respectively our lead guitarist and our bass player. Al Vitas had a friend, uh, Joey, McCujus, um, who played drums uh, in high school, and uh, just, he just knew how to play drums. So I go. So they asked him because he was a few years. I mean, Alan Vithas and and Joey were a few years younger than Vinus and myself. And we asked him, "You guys interested in doing this?" And he said, "Heck yeah!" So they're like sophomores, juniors, maybe seniors in high school. And so, starting in the fall of '79, we started uh, rehearsing. Uh, in the basement of uh, the Ploplis family, uh, 72nd and Tallman Market Park neighborhood. Right. And um, and so we so we learned all these songs. So, okay, well, now what are we going to do? So we ended up uh, creating our own first gig. We, we decided to volunteer our services for doing a, a, a youth dance at the Lithuanian Youth Center. I think that was uh, in April of... Uh, 1980 so between fall of uh, 79 and april of 1980 we we drilled it pretty good and uh played that show and then people were that were at that show were kind of impressed so we got a, a gig like right away two weeks later right and it was, then it was kind of a dry spell um we did play a huge show that summer fourth of july weekend at uh Knights of Lithuania Hall in, in Brighton Park neighborhood and we had oh, like I don't know the, the numbers keep going up over the years but depending on who you ask you probably like probably like honestly for sure 200 maybe as many as 400 uh, kids show up for that dance because it immediately followed like this big uh, dress rehearsal for the Lithuanian Folk Dance Festival uh, at the amphitheater which was happening that weekend okay so and so that was that was pretty much uh, the apex of our mercurial rise. Um, we played a couple more shows, and then I got to the end of school, finished uh, my degree at uh, DePaul, and uh, I got a job opportunity in Detroit, and I decided to go. So Vinus, Al, and uh, Vitas, and Joey, they kept kept on for a while. You know, uh, Vinus picked up uh, the lead vocalist job. And uh, every now and then, maybe once, twice a year for the next year or so, I'd come back and uh, guest vocal uh, on some Dead Freddy shows. And then after that, Vinus finished school. He ended up going to Germany to be a teacher. And then uh, Alan Vithas took over their dad's metal shop business. And uh, Joey went on to become... Um, uh, a car salesman and a quite successful one at that I think he still does that to this very day it's one of those jobs that many musicians say hey you know what I'm going to go make some real money and then they end up selling cars or insurance or real estate yeah. <laughs> we see that yeah. happen all the time yeah. yeah 
Yeah, so that's really kind of faded into the background, probably somewhere between late 1982 and early 1983. Okay. So that's really the origin story there. Yeah, and then uh, when you decided to kick it back in to high gear, uh, how, how, how did you get that going? Well, um, since I'm continue to be but i was more active before i was uh, very involved in the wing and scott association and i was uh, a leader for many many years and uh my favorite uh, age group to work with was uh teenage boys uh 14 to 17 and a lot of those kids always look forward to doing something uh, a little extra in addition to just regular summer camp so one of the things that they would do is uh, they'd either go on uh, longer uh, bicycle tours, like a week-long bicycle tour, or go to Philmont Scout Reservation in New Mexico. And so that costs money. So um, the the people that were, and I was involved, that were organizing uh, the first uh, trip to Philmont in a long, long, long time, said we should do a fundraiser, and would uh, the original Dead Freddy be up for doing that? I says, well, I'll give it a shot. I've, I've tried this reunion thing before. I'll ask again. And uh, Alvinus is very busy uh, being uh, uh, head of the writing department at UIC, even to this day. Um, Al, not interested uh, with us. And I said, I, I sold my, my base after we quit in 83. And I, I don't think I could do it again. All right. <laughs> And then uh, Joey's like, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now and not, not too interested in, in coming back for whatever. So uh, undeterred, I go, well, I think uh, the Dead Freddy music is still something worth bringing back. Uh, I felt like there was still unfinished business uh, from years before because we never actually recorded any of that music other than a couple of cassette tapes that I still have laying around. And so I, I, that's the point where I asked uh, my daughter, who was a musician in her own right, uh, with a couple of bands that she was in and still does her own solo work, you want to help me out on this? And she goes, yeah, it's just kind of a one-time thing. I'll help you out with this. And so then I go, well, what about this other guy, TJ Petrie? He, I heard that he plays uh, bass. Yeah, he says he plays bass, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> so he just says that him. to impress girls, right? You know, I'm I, a bass player. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was one of my, my Boy Scouts, so I called him up. And I go, hey, would you be wanting to do this? And he says, well, I kind of hemmed and hawed at first, and then his mother found out that I asked him to do it, and his mother goes, yes, you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> you are a bass player. <laughs> yeah, because his, his mom was one of the people pushing for this fundraiser and thought yeah. it would be the coolest thing for Dead Friday. So he said, okay. And then we asked uh, another guy, um, uh, Mick Solis, uh, to do drums. He's also the same age as, uh, again, on DJ. And uh, at first he said, yeah. And he says, man, I haven't played drums since high school, like, Okay, he's out of high school for like a year, you know. Right, <laughs> so right. It's not, not like he had walked away completely from the drums, but then he said, you know, uh, I'm going to talk to my dad, Ed. So then I then I talked to Ed, and Ed goes, you know, he he doesn't think he can do it, but I can help you out because I have a friend who's a drummer, uh, Thomas 
Mulhern, a.k.a. Mulls. And if you need a second guitarist, I'd be more than happy to jump in. So okay. That's that, so that's how that happened. So I got my daughter to play. I got our, her buddy and my buddy, my scout friend, uh, TJ, to play. And then we got uh, Ed Sautis to do second guitar. And then we got uh, Moles to play drums. And so we geared it up uh, starting in the fall of 2011. And we had the first youth night fundraiser in uh, February of 2012. Excellent. So, okay, so that's when you got back together. Who are the current members of the band? And, and give them a little uh, a little spotlight. Yes, uh, the current members of the band. Uh, let's start with uh, Gary Vaca. He came to the band in uh, the, the fall of 2019. He played with Headspins for about 10 or 12 years, another Chicago punk band. Right. And uh, when the bass player moved to Nashville to make a new life uh he said yeah okay i'll, I'll jump in with that freddie i saw you guys play uh at reggie's just like you did and i think it'd be cool uh we're kind of cut from the same cloth gary is also half lithuanian so when i introduce the band i say we're i think three eighths no five eighths lithuanian <laughs> <laughs> so that's scary he's are you the world's uh, only lithuanian ska punk band i'm wondering I'd like to make that claim. I think we're going to make it right here. The definitely okay. the uh, the premier. We'll put the premier <laughs> Lithuanian ska punk band. Who else is in the band? All right. Uh, we also picked up um, Carl Sperling. Uh, Carl Sperling plays bass for us now. He came to us via Sergeant Sauerkraut Polka Band. He and Gintas both uh, Moonlight uh, with uh, Sergeant Sauerkraut. That's a uh, a Beatles polka parody band. Beautiful. So they they fit a very narrow niche, but they are really <laughs> they are really something to see. And they, they they do the big shows. They do uh, they've they've been to the Milwaukee Polka Riot a couple of times. They they play at uh, Pierogi Fest uh, every summer. Uh, they they do they do a Christmas fundraiser every year. So that's how they came together. Uh, you know, they definitely own the genre of Lithuanian Beatles parody polka. <laughs> that's so, for sure. So that's how we, we came to have Carl in our lineup. And then uh, we have uh, Gintas Buenavichos. Now he is our multi-talented, multi-instrumentalist, uh, creative engine for the most part when it comes to uh, current songwriting. And uh, he generally plays drums when we're playing full-fledged uh, Dead Freddy punk rock kind of shows. Uh, but uh, he and I have been known to do uh, Dead Freddy duo acoustic sets, and he can pick up and play an acoustic uh, just as well as about anybody. And then there's me, um, the uh, only existing original member of uh, the original Dead Freddy lineup, and I'm the lead vocalist and the occasional tinkle on the accordion keys. That's Amen. My, that's my job. So that's that's where we are right now. couple questions is your daughter still in, in is she still performing music is she doing her own thing she does uh, she performs as a solo artist uh, also known as kicked by a hand that's 
that's the handle she goes by. Kicked by a hand. And she did some live Facebook streams during uh, the lockdown. Um, she was in a bunch of other bands, too, that uh, she instigated. She was in uh, Just About Cliché, One Cheap Date, uh, maybe one other one along the way. Um, so she has some musical chops. Brings a tear to my eye that uh, a child of mine would do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. My my uh, my younger daughter Diana. She's a big music lover and a big Dead Friday supporter as well. So I'm Excellent. glad that I'm glad that uh, I played all those uh, Dead Freddy tapes in the car going to and from uh, school with them. So they. <laughs> I think subconsciously knew that music. They knew the, the tunes. Age. Well, now oh, yeah. you, you grew up in Marquette Park in a very diverse area, south side of Chicago, and um, you know, you know, the influences, like I mentioned, listening to your albums, listening to your music, uh, are so diverse, and the instrumentation it changes. Every song is fresh. Every song sounds like it could have been from a different album. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't, there's not a, there's not a uniform sound. There's more of a dead Freddie sound. And then you might have a twangy guitar in this one. You might have accordion in that one. Uh, it, it's really, you, it feels like you guys are really at home in the studio. We had a lot of fun uh, the two times we've been in the studio, and certainly we gave some serious thought that we don't want every song to sound the same. Fortunately, we had a, a body of material that allowed us to put some diverse sounds on the different tracks that we put onto our two releases. And so, yeah, we're always looking for changes in dynamics. We're looking for changes in sound. We're looking for songs that tell different stories. And uh, I think we were pretty successful. Yeah, great stories and great hooks. Um, my daughter's favorite one uh, is uh, she. She won't play house. Is that it? Oh yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and my favorite, my two favorites on the album are Cliche and Stage Brain, which I just, I just love those songs. I love the whole album. It's one of those albums you put on. It's great for a ride in the car because it'll get you through. If you're stuck in traffic, you'll still be pumped yeah. up because of your got you got Dead Freddy playing. But you know, you, you play a lot of like if, if people go to your Facebook page or your social media, they'll see you at Lithuanian gatherings, and that goes back to you know obviously your upbringing and. Uh, the the folk music of Lithuania that played a role in your early musical development. Can you expound on that? Yes. Um, the, our original lineup, uh, our original five-member lineup, we all went to uh, Saturday school. It was a Lithuanian school on the south side at Donalaitis. On Saturdays, it was called Donalaitis. Every other day of the week, Monday through Friday, was McKay Public School. <laughs> <laughs> Did they change? Did they have a, a rotating sign, or they, it was just, they, it was just not, a, they were just a they given, did, huh? They did not change the banner on weekends. Right. <laughs> so again, the, you know, the the Saturday school, Lithuanian school, and then Sundays we had scout meetings. And as we got older, we joined the Lithuanian folk dance groups, and we were in Lithuanian choir. We were what was known as uh, practicing Lithuanians. So we were pretty well deeply immersed into Lithuanian culture because we are first generation Americans. All of our parents, they came to the U S after the second world war and they, they just kind of, um, uh, clumped together with people that they knew and and keeping together with uh, things that they knew and loved and that kind of rubbed off on on their offspring and so yeah it's it's 
definitely and literally in our DNA, uh, the whole Lithuanian part of our culture. And uh, we thought that would be interesting in, in some of our more recent streams. We, we pick one song. I think it's Kaip Grozumishka. That's by a Lithuanian guy named Vitas Kernagis. And it's literally translated as How Beautiful the Forest. But actually, it's a, a huge parody on Soviet rule in, in, in Lithuania in the 70s and 80s. So oh, really? we, like, we like to stick that one in there. It's fun to sing along and, and do the hey, hey parts. And uh, you know, he, he also went to the same Lithuanian school a few years after I did. So we still have that yeah. connection that goes from way back when, even though we didn't even know each other back then. Oh, um, too cool. That's yeah. awesome. Now, now you mentioned, you know, you're the first uh, lineup of the band kind of came about in the burgeoning punk scene in the late 70s. Um, but when did when did rock and roll hit you? When, when did you say, ooh, this is something I want to pursue? Well, um, when I was really a little kid, my parents would play AMA 20, W-A-I-T. You know, it was right. like totally soft music. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what my mom would have on in the kitchen. And then I had a much more enlightened sister that was about a year older than me. And uh, she introduced me to WLS and WCFL and WIND here in Chicago. That's where I first started hearing rock and roll. And then a few years later, you know, Triad came on to FM and WXRT came on the air. And uh, she was a big uh, vinyl collector back in the day. So she would, uh, you know, put the record on in her bedroom, go, come here and listen to this. Right, right, right. Well, right. that's interesting. So I have to give kudos to my big sister, Asta, as, uh, as the mentor for my early rock education. And then uh, from that little bit, you know, when we all got to be in high school and whatever, and we all were listening pretty much to the same radio station, the same music, uh, you know, we really appreciated the bands of the of the late 70s you know the, the real you know, the classics the rolling stones the who zeppelin beatles right springsteen and alice cooper you know we we listened to all that stuff um but when it came to uh, the flashpoint moment for punk it was um uh, uh an evening at my friend al's house in brighton park and he lived around the corner from cruising music over at archer in california sure and uh, he'd stop in there quite often. And uh, on our way out the door to go see off Broadway at some north side bar, he goes, hey, come into the room for a minute. I got some records I got today. So he, he played us Sex Pistols. First time he ever heard that. He played us The Clash. First time he ever heard that. And he played us The Ramones. First time I ever heard that. And at that moment, he goes, I really like that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and a little think, raw energy there, yeah. And I think that ignited uh, uh, something in my friend Vinus as well. It's like, well, this is this is what's happening now. We should really do this. You know, anybody can play, you know, uh, metal rock and the, the stuff that we've been listening to. But this is something new and fresh, and I think this is a direction we want to go. Yeah. You know, you know, I miss going to Cruising Music uh, Archer near California there because – there were so many great record stores up and down Archer. You could find a bunch 63rd street, the same. And I remember going in, do you remember the days of going in, not knowing what, well, I still do it, but you, you I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'm going to find oh, something. Yeah. The oh, first yeah. Roxy, the, I never even heard of Roxy music before. I was probably a sophomore in high school 
uh, either drove or took the bus, depending on where I was in my age and in being licensed or not. And I remember seeing a Roxy music album with a mermaid on the cover. And I'm thinking, what, what is this? And brought it home, put it on. And again, it's one of those moments. The first time you hear, the first time you hear the Ramones, the first time you hear Marvin Gaye, the first time you hear the Beatles when you're a kid, these, these people who reshape the way you not only listen to music, but how you look at what can be done with the, with the, with the art form. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things I mentioned or that my wife and I were talking about after we had seen you, you, you folks have some great stagecraft in that band. There's uh there's an element of just having a party with the audience, but there's a bit of a, there's a bit of cabaret to what you do. Am I on the right track there? It's the first time I've really heard that slant on it, but I like it. Yeah, it's it's kind of you know you're presenting this thing, um, this great music. It's very lively, and you're not letting the audience off the hook. You're not. This is not a passive situation. You're going to engage with Dead Freddy. So now with the with the lockdowns and all the craziness from the last year, what does that do to a band? Well, uh, there was there was a, a cocoon moment for all of us where when things once we came back from uh, our out of town show in Detroit at Kelly's Bar in Hamtramck, which was a great time, we came back and that's when all the uh, the state of Illinois dictates came down and so about March through about May we didn't see each other. We still texted often. Uh, we didn't get together and finally towards the end of May, this is like, you know, the weather's warming up. I can open up the garage. Literally we can get together. We can just do some acoustic stuff and let's get something going. So we did that. And in fact, we got together, uh, even in February, uh, this would be, this is very 21. This would be, uh, towards the end of uh, May of 2020, and uh, so we started doing some Dead Freddy duo stuff. And then towards uh, mid-June, late June, we got the other guys over. And so we did a couple of garage shows, uh, live streamed on Facebook. And then uh, in September, we finally were able to play out at uh, Out of Space in, in Berwyn. And so there was a quiet period, uh, but we were all anxious to come back and get together. I, I do what's known as the randomly issued uh, dead freddy <laughs> dead, dead freddy members only update so i kept them up on like well here's our plans to only get back together we should learn some new songs work on some new material nail down some some cool covers let's plan on a, a garage show on such and such a day so there was always uh, some kind of activity either digital or or live uh, that kept us going through the lockdown. So there was another low, um, like from about November or mid late October through probably about March of this year, where we really didn't get together much because we didn't want to be in anybody's basement. And it was too cold to be in the garage. But again, we kept uh, we kept track of each other. We said, let's work on these songs on our own, and. Uh, 
And so then once we did get back together, it was like meeting old friends and just kind of picking up where we left off. So it yeah. was, could have been worse. I think we did okay. Right. Yeah. And you're doing great. So what's in the, what's in the cooker now for you? Are you playing the Milwaukee Polka Fest? We are. We are Excellent. playing the we are playing the Milwaukee Polka Riot, and I think this is going to be the third or fourth one. I went back in 2019 uh, with my friend Gintas, who also does drums for Sergeant Sauerkraut Polka Band. I met with the organizers then. I says, you know, you should you should check out that Freddie. We got the little accordion thing happening. It's a different slant. It's not a real polka band. He says, well, that's exactly the kind of alternative polka sound that we're looking for so we had to wait two years but uh he remembered us and we're we're on the we're on the we're on the bill this year with uh who else we got that freddie you got sergeant sauerkraut we're gonna be yid vicious there's gonna be november november criminals and uh i think either the polka holics or the polka knots either way it's it's don hedeker the guy that we used to be in algebra suicide so yeah so there might be one or two more bands. I think there's going to be six, seven bands in all. So uh, we'll be we'll be on that bill. We're really excited about making the trip up to Wisconsin. Oddly enough, there's a great connection between punk and polka. You've got uh, you know it's got it's got its roots in the people, and it, it definitely uh, rhythmically and 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 melodically it 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 marries well. <sighs> You're not the only one you know, that says that. Yeah. I think uh, Evan Marzuski, one of the co-organizers, did pretty much a, a treatise on that very topic. And, uh, yeah, I totally buy into it. Yeah. So what have you been listening to lately? What's uh, tripping your trigger? Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of uh, research. Um, and, honestly, I haven't been listening. I, I do listen to WXRT, but what I'm more interested in doing now that the lockdown's over, I'll go to the clubs again. And I'll go to out of space. I'll go to a couple of other, other places that are kind of in the neighborhood and I'll listen to the new bands and uh, I'll take pictures. I'll post them up on Facebook, do a little video stuff, introduce myself to them after they're done with their set you know, exchange business cards and whatever. So the new music that I'm listening to is is uh, up and coming Chicago bands that aren't even, some are on vinyl, some are not. So mm -hmm. that's really what I've been listening to lately. Yeah, well, you know, Chicago's always been uh, a great hub of creative artists and, and diverse sounds. I mean, you know, when you look at the grunge era, and that came about in in the mid '90s, and the the bands had a similar vibe, you know. But in mm -hmm. Chicago, there's uh, there's bands who really diverse, unique sounds, you know. Oh, you're not kidding. I mean, I, I love uh, the Crombies for their ska sound. I love the Dyes for their rockabilly sound. I love uh, Dirty Green. They do what they call a. Uh, I better not say this wrong. I'll get in trouble. Uh, but they do like a, it's basically it's country by punk. Yeah. Which is, it's a very interesting sound. And so you, you go to these places and you hear all these diverse different sounds. And that's yeah. really what I'm enjoying now. That's what I've always loved about the Chicago scene is you can see any type of band, any type of music. And, uh, there's camaraderie there. There's, there's a lot of people that are still doing it still out there. I, I ran into, um, someone last week I was, I played with a, a couple of cover bands and they were working with, um, 
some guys that used to work with the kind, you know, and then other yeah. other people are working. You know, I interviewed a drummer last week who's now fronting the Buddy Rich band. So it's it's just wow. we're all over the place. But but it's been a tightly knit group for a long time. Now you worked with uh, Matt Mercado. We did. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Our, our full length LP was uh, at Sonic Palace uh, when it was still in Oak Park. It was fun to work with him. He did a good job. He, he really, <laughs> he worked us hard and yeah. he was very meticulous. And I think because of his attention to detail and because he made us work hard that that album sounds as good as it does. So kudos to, to Matt for, for his efforts. Yeah. I used to see him uh, in a band called mind bomb. Do you remember them? I do. Yeah. I do. I always thought he was a creative kid. I got to get him on this program. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll drop your name and get you and get him to, uh, to be an interview. Oh, it's automatic. Once you mention my, my name, for sure. <laughs> and now yeah. he's he's uh, he's a producer now, and and he he did your album. Now, if people want to hear the entire, I'm playing snippets throughout the show uh, from the album, but I want them to hear the whole album. I want them to to learn all about Dead Freddy and get out there and see it. Where can they go to uh, not only get your music, but to get your itinerary? Um, well, we have our website. It's www.deadfreddy.com. That's D-E-A-D-F-R-E-D-D-I-E, no spaces, all lowercase, dot com. Uh, I usually try to keep the calendar pretty up to date there. We post most on the Facebook page for Dead Freddy. We usually got a lot of stuff going on there. If you want to hear the album in its entirety for free, uh, you can hear that on Spotify. Just look up Dead Freddy on Spotify. And if you want to help support the band, uh, then we also have our music available on Bandcamp along with uh, some other band merch if you're interested in getting some cool stuff there. Very cool. And then you have to make a a date to see these guys live because you guys just kill it. And I'm, I'm glad to, uh, to have gotten to know you and I look forward to seeing you again. So other than the Milwaukee poker riot, are there any other dates coming up now that things are starting to open up a little bit for the foreseeable future? Yeah, we're, we're going to be kicking off our late summer fall season on August 20th at out of space in Berwyn. Uh, will be having Saddleman open for us. Gintas is the front man for Saddleman. He does his, his old school original country with uh, his little trio there. Um, September 25th, we are going to make our debut appearance at DZ Fest on Hickory Hills. This is going to be the ninth annual 40 band bonanza that's organized by Ben Argyles, who is also the operator of DZ Records in Hickory Hills. We're going to be uh, out at Save More Lounge and Liquors on October 9th. This is a new venture by Euphelia, a.k.a. L. Quintana. She's the owner and booker. She used to book shows at Reggie's and other places. She's focusing on uh, her own venue now, so she has the power to get us in there. So we'll be there in early October. And then we're going to reprise our opening slot for Off-Broadway, at Reggie's on October 30th. We're really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's a good crowd. Yeah, that's it. Off Broadway is a fun band. Who are some of the other bands that you've shared the bills with uh, over your career? Oh boy, you opened uh, for well, the Dickies. I know at Reggie's, right? We did, we did open for the Dickies. Uh, we've we've played with uh, amazing heebie-jeebies. We played with Southside Exiles. Uh, we played with Dirty Green. 
oh man, I should have made a list. Played with, <laughs> played with uh, quite a. Quite, we played with we played with handcuffs. Uh, handcuffs uh, guitarist uh, Gary Vaca is now guitarist for Dead Freddy after handcuffs disbanded in 2019 2020 uh, so we're, we're, it's great to have him with us uh, we'll be playing with Sergeant Sauerkraut Milwaukee um, boy who else we played with we, then, then we would play shows like at the, the Mutiny or Livewire where the, the, the booker just booked in all the other bands with bands we'd never heard of and never seen again which was part of the fun in, in playing those shows yeah so but those are the ones that come to mind well I'll, I'm gonna head out and see you in uh, Hickory Hills that sounds like a riot that sounds like a good time it's just weird because I you know I want to go see bands but I'm playing in two so it's like I every weekend's yeah. booked up but it's the life we choose you know well, you know, we'll be in a very early slot at DZ Fast. We'll be on at 12.30 p.m. on uh, September 25th. Oh, so, right. And so if you have a show that night, you still might be able to squeak out early and see our set and get to wherever you need to be. I definitely will. And I'll bring my album that you signed for uh, the rest of the guys to sign. Well, awesome. I love your music. I got to tell you, I, I wanted to have you on because uh, I think Dead Freddy's an exciting band. They're a refreshing band. They're a fun band. And your songs are intelligent and well-crafted. And once again, go to Bandcamp, buy their music, go to deadfreddy.com. That's Freddy, F-R-E-D-D-I-E, and uh, find out about this band. Donatus, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to seeing you at the shows. All right. Continued success. Donatus, before you go, five (laughs) albums off the top of your head that you would bring to a desert island. Oh my God! It's just you, deserted island, and a turntable. Somehow there's electricity. Oh man, it probably uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Cup Band by the Beatles. Uh, It probably would be uh, Hot Rocks Greatest Hits by the Rolling Stones. It would probably be oh man. Harder after that. I just I'm just gonna go all all classic. I'm gonna go with Who's Next by the Who. Yep. Uh, Led Zeppelin four. Um, boy, and one more. Oh, geez, it's tough. <laughs> it is very, very tough. Oh man, it won't be the last one. I can't do one of my own records. I don't think. But she uh, hmm. can. <laughs> well, I, if that's if that's the case, then I, I would I would bring the Dead Freddy EP, the six song EP that we did in 2016. That's 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 all meat and no fluff i tell you i gotta drive i gotta drive to work through the woods every day and uh your your cd keeps me going so uh thank you so much we'll be with you real soon and uh we'll see you uh at one of these gigs coming up all right mike and i'll be expecting to see uh your gig sheet uh floating up somewhere so i can uh, do the same bring your accordion We'll, we'll bring you up on stage. All right. Don't dare me, man, because I just might do it. <laughs> <laughs> I need a little heads up on what some of the tracks might be, though. <laughs> yeah, I do, too. They change it every time I play with them. And it keeps it exciting. Yeah, it does. Good to talk to you, man. You be well. Okay, Mike. Thanks again. All right, Donatus. Bye-bye. Bye. Here's part two of our interview 
with the king of power pop, Donnie V, the first guest on our program. Now, in this second chat, at first, I don't think Donnie's aware that we're actually recording for the podcast, but we adapt and overcome and discuss some of his great compositions. Did you ever go to uh, Summit for burritos at 3 o'clock in the morning? I've, I've had plenty of burritos at 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, Summit, Illinois on Archer Road. It's a South Side staple. We used to go down to that five bases. Oh, yeah. Shit like that. I forget. We used to go to a bunch of different places. I was usually hungry at that, uh, that time. That would be guys like you. I would be uh, like over in Robbins and shit. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd crack, I'd crack and shit. In Robbins. Sure, I used to live right next to it in Blue Island when I stayed at my mom's. It was Robbins yeah. was like four blocks away. A lot of uh, buildings in Robbins with uh, boarded up windows. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. Robbins is a tough town. It is. I mean, I spent a lot of time in there when I was uh, in my heyday. I, I used to have, uh, I used to have, uh, Everybody I knew would get get arrested going pulling in there to a trailer park and shit. Because if you're white and you're over there pulling in there, it's, you're, you know there's only one reason why you would be. Right. So I took I took uh, I found uh, peeled uh, the, the Domino's pizza magnets off some delivery guy's car one time. So I took those. I had those. And I would just stick those on the side of my car every time <laughs> I I go over there. And like the one time I seen the police, they pulled right up to me. And I was like. Hey, I got to deliver a pizza in there. Is it okay? Am I safe in there? He goes, you should be all right. I said, all right, yeah. And so every time I see them, then I just wave. Everybody else getting arrested, I just wave it. Creative in every aspect of your life. That's uh, that's that's the key. I'm a creative motherfucker. That's it. <laughs> what are some of the strangest places you've woken up when you're on the road? With enough's enough in the hey that you know you guys are you're doing Letterman you're doing Stern you're the toast of the town and uh, what are some of the strange stories that have come from those places you ever like said to yourself I really got to get out of this place yeah, absolutely uh, the last well we had we ended up coming up with a rule after a couple of bad things happened that nobody uh, on the road nobody veers off and gets and takes off without the band or anything, you know, if we're spending the night in town and shit, everybody sticks around, you know, and does, don't, because uh, we had a tech that one time we were out of the bar, the road crew were out of the bar and stuff, and I guess he picked up some chick and they were talking about that they're, uh, she's talking about that she's into freaky shit and stuff, staying at the hotel down the street. <clears throat> so he went with her and uh, she said, tie me up and stuff. So he tied her all up and they fucking and shit. And then she's like, let me tie you up tied him up, tied him in the bed and shit, all secure. Some, then some dude pops out of the closet in a Batman costume. He's got a like, whole utility belt of dildos and shit. They fucked this guy up, man. <laughs> fucked him up, and then we had the rule that nobody goes, takes off without the thing. And uh, but Of course, I had a few times. Frigo would come up missing, missed the plane and shit. And, uh, but I'd wait. One of the last one time, a couple times I woke up with... Uh, with some uh, husband or boyfriend or somebody beating the door down. Yeah. And I'm there, and, I, and the last time I remember that, I woke up and there was, all I'm wearing is a suit jacket and a bra around my neck is like a tie and, and, a, and a suit jacket, no <laughs> pants no pants or nothing. And there's a, her pet iguana lizard is standing on my chest looking at me. And I hear the door, and the door is, and then two seconds later, the door is being pounded on. 
And I'm like, what the fuck, man? And I fucking, uh, I shimmied out, scurried out the, it's on a balcony, like an apartment. So I scurry out the balcony and uh, I climb up this little thing up onto the roof and I'm running across the roof. And, and luckily I had some uh, boxer shorts. I grabbed them on the way out and a boxer shorts and a suit jacket running across the roof. And, and I left my, thank God I left my shoes because my feet went stuck to the, to the roof and I, and I got to the end of the, the roof of the thing and there was a tree and it was about four feet away from the, the building. I had to jump into the tree like Rambo. In boxer shorts. <laughs> yeah, boxer shorts and a suit jacket. Beautiful. And fucking shimmy down the tree and boogied around the thing and ran into 7-Eleven, right? And uh, made and then uh, made the call, you know, come and get me. I'm at 7-Eleven. I'm behind the freezer. I'm kneeling <laughs> down back there. <laughs> And the 7-Eleven guy's like, you got to go. You got no shoes. You got no shoes in this scenario. So, well, these are my swimming shorts. I said, and, uh, and I went outside, and they got, like, the, those classified penny saver things, those ads and stuff right. outside the door. And I, so I made a pair of paper shoes. And I walked in. <laughs> the guy's go, you know shoes. I go, these are my shoes. I said, you can't discriminate. I wear paper shoes. It's the shoes I wear. And, said, and I got a jacket on. You know, and I'm wearing my boxing shorts, and luckily they pulled up pretty quickly and uh, got me the fuck out of there. But that's yeah. happened a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, with are... the, not with the iguana lizard and uh, and they were running on the roof, but it's, it's a couple of times I've had to run. Yeah, I hard. bet. I bet. You guys were, you know, you were known as a party band early on. And one of the things, you know, I remember going to see you like at Haywire's, and at, um, what was the place in Lions next to the strip club? Uh, Adriatic Lounge, you remember that? We burned the fucking thing down. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, they were doing pyro. The guy brought in some pyro. And that fucking, <laughs> and the ceiling was what? Fucking eight, Ten feet tall, feet. yeah, right. Yeah, and it was carpeted. Carpeted ceiling. And so the guy's making these little pyro things that I'm looking at, and he's got like a Coke spoon that he's putting just a little bit of this in the thing. And I'm like, what the fuck is that going to do? It's like a Coke spoon worth. He goes, it'll be fine. I took the little spoon. I put a couple more scoops in the fucking things that he was making. He's like, they're like little test tube things. Yeah. So I took that little, I took that little spoon and I started, when he went to the bathroom, they had a couple more scoops to it. And, uh, and so the, the bomb was supposed to go off. We, we would, we'd come out with this big, but then we go into a kiss the clown and it's like, kiss this. And as soon as we do kiss this, yeah, we, we all we all do the kick with our feet up in the air, sure. and, uh, and the bomb would go. That bomb fucking boom blew me back into the drums. <laughs> I went flying, wiped the drums out. Ringo, his whole bangs are singed, singed off. Fucking chip, chip was off to the side anyway because of the I don't know if he was kicking around with something that blew it. Fucking that was the end of the and the carpet ceiling lit fire and burned so quickly all the way to the back to the front door. And that was like a long, skinny thing. It was like a, you know, it was like just a, about 10 feet wide, but 30 feet long <laughs> the club. Yeah. yeah. And we started, so the ceiling just immediately lit fire. And then Fadestein uh, was our manager at that time. He got them to, to pay us and was going to sue them for almost blowing up his band. <laughs> and, and, and nobody except you and maybe a couple other people know that I put that you got an extra couple scoops in there. That fucking, yeah, I don't, that stuff is, it really goes a long way with that pyrotechnic shit. A little dabble, do you? <laughs> yeah, but why yeah. leave it to the experts when you could just uh, dabble with it yourself? Yeah, that was one of the clubs you played. And, of course, the Thirsty Whale. 
Um, where, you know, there's a couple things I got to bring up on this program because I'm trying to be as open and as honest as I can be. The backstage area, which was actually the front of the uh, Thirsty Whale, um, Chip and my girlfriend disappeared for like two hours one time. And Chip to this day denies everything, but I, I can't. I can't, uh, I can't buy it, brother. You got to deny it, you know? I mean, he probably is just, probably just getting a back rub and, and listening, letting her talk shit about you. Yeah. Being a good, lis- being a good listener. Or he was getting his dick stuff. One of the two. It was one of the two. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he, he tells me I would never do that to you. And, uh, <laughs> But, you know, bygones be bygones. Those are wild times. Uh, people actually, you know, the thing about the Thirsty Whale, I had the uh, honor of uh, being the DJ that introduced Enough's Enough at the closing of the Thirsty Whale. Oh, the very last, yeah, the last thing when I, I demolished fucking place. Yeah, yeah, you, oh, yeah. Down you, the ceilings and all that shit. It was great. It was, there was a... Uh, record for how many people ever fit in there yeah it was uh, it was jammed like 1500 people in there I think the place only held like 8 or something and those are back that was back in the days when you would just get you know after you do 4 shows because you guys would do early shows and late shows and then you play those clubs because I remember doing comedy clubs and you'd do a number of shows and then they would just hand you an envelope full of cash yeah it was actually in a paper bag because we would always go there when we get back some scores and shit, because uh, we didn't go through the booking agency when we do those. We do those when we come home. We go straight, and they would pay us in, you know, the brown bag. And like you said, it was four shows. It was a grueling weekend, but uh, and you know, usually spend half the money for you leave the club. They were they were also low dealers. Yeah, you know, until uh, but one. So we had a we played this one weekend. The weekend before on a, one month before that closing show. We played and uh, did the four shows. Did and Derek and I we chopped a bunch of blow. We started our next show wasn't until that that next that next one a month later exactly uh, another four shows and um, that was the one that you introduced and uh, me and Frigo nobody ever believes me and uh, even a, even a nurse I've talked to and a doctor it's possible but uh, Frigo and I between heroin and cocaine going back and forth. Uh, Never slept. Never slept for a week. Thirty no, thirty days, bro. Oh my god. Thirty days plus four more shows. Thirty days. Yeah, stayed up stayed up that weekend too. After uh did the Friday night and then stayed up Saturday night. So we did eight shows. Yeah. Stayed stayed up thirty fucking days. And then Sunday and I got down to probably Remember how skinny I was? Yeah, and I remember you coming on stage, if I remember correctly, Derek Frigo fell down on stage and uh and you threw up and you ran off stage to throw up and you came back and you said, I'm sorry, I got the flu. <laughs> that was the, the rock star flu. Those are the good old days, yeah. man. Crazy days. Dude, that, that's fucking insane when, when when people and doctors and stuff say that's humanly impossible. But I swear to God, we got a phone call. We're we're just partying. We didn't even know it was that long. Right. You know, I was like days blend into days. And all of a sudden, the uh, phone rang, and bring him on the answer machine going, Hey, uh, so I'll be there to get you guys in about 45 minutes. I'm oh like, get you guys? For, for what? What do we got to do? And then, then I called the bag, what the fuck do we need 45 minutes to do what? So then he goes, we got the show. The show, is like, where? He goes, next show, the answer is Thirsty Well. He goes, there's a Thirsty Well. I go, come on. Said, we just played there last week. He's like, No. 
He goes, don't tell me. You guys are still going? Oh. are like, holy fuck. And so it throws some threads on and shit and, uh, and did those, those four shows. Mm-hmm. No, so eight shows, 30 days up. Heroin cocaine did the job. Oh. And he eat anything? Oh. Yeah, it was crazy. That's why I was throwing up and stuff. But I, I still made, the, I finished the shows. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and you're always you're always were uh, ready to roll. I, I interviewed you one time, uh, right after Animals with Human Intelligence came out, and we were we were they they sequestered us off in this back area, and uh, and I think you were coming off of that long uh, run because the I couldn't use the interview for the uh, radio. It was incoherent, and uh, you were talking about. You asked me if I liked Whitney Houston, and you said you you know I really I'm supposed to like Whitney Houston. I was thinking that must be Clive Davis talking to you. Yeah, no, he was trying to he was trying to pinch me out of the band for that. And then I get the fucking rap, and everybody claims that it was because of me that we got that we were dropped from the label, which we weren't dropped from the label. We were we were given a release. They had no rock market, but what had happened was we did, we, did, we did a showcase for them in New York. Like, after we did the deal, we played a big show just for the Aristotle people at the Marquee. Yeah. And it was great. Everything went great. So we had one a month later in L.A. at the Roxy, which was going to be for the BMG, which was our publishing deal we were going to do, a half-million-dollar publishing deal. And uh, so they were coming out, and it was called the BMG Convention, and we were playing there at the Roxy, and... They had two acts. They had us, and then they had this country band that opening for us. And uh, and, and but Clive insisted that uh, that we we got this keyboard guy and used loops and backing tracks and stuff like that for it because you know all I had was chip singing back on our music. It was really difficult to do that shit. And so uh, we got this guy Kim Ballard. He comes out and uh, comes out with his single and his huge computer and shit like that. And I. Uh, and I had to sing all the background harmonies into the single ear for the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, put, put them all in there, all the parts and stuff. We finished that up. The road crew unplugged and pat- went to pack up his shit for him and unplugged it before he had saved any of it. Hey, get over there. And so it was all gone. It was all lost. And, uh, and uh, two days later, it was a show. I had to boom the next day. The same thing happened. No. Brought, no, the next day was the show. He brought it to the sound check. I had to do it uh, before the show, after sound check. And before the show, I had to do it again into the thing. Um, and then go back to the hotel and get ready and shit. So I did that. And uh, they lost it again. So mm-hmm. right before the show, when I got back there, I had to do them real quick and throw those fuckers back in there. And they weren't perfect, but they they would work. And so, uh, so everything sound check was great sounded great with the stacking tracks and everything and I remember they're playing Innocence I'm like this is fucking awesome and so the opening act was the country band alright so we had Brigham there uh Herbie Herbert was there for this one um Scott Beret they flew him in to do sound the guy did all the jury he came in to do the sound and we had our full road crew well after sound check nobody stayed with the fucking PA nobody stayed with the, the gear shit like that the road crew all went back to the hotel to get cleaned up so they get laid fucking Herbie and all those guys and Bob and Scott Ray, the sound guy you know when you headline is done sound checking it's all roped off in the opener you get these four channels you know what I mean right. you can't move anything around you get this nobody did that 
they had full free reign. They came in totally, totally fucking changed everything. The monitors were moved around. The amps were moved around. They struck our drums. It was a fucking nightmare. The road crew just scrambled to put it back together. And, um, and so the first chord we hit, and I knew that we were fucked right then. It was like, oh, my God. And uh, before the show, Clive was giving a big speech about Whitney Houston getting a record, world record for number one now. And uh, somebody handed me a dozen roses. So I, I crept up behind him and handed him the roses while he was doing uh, the speech. And I was, you know, just being endearing. You know what I mean? And he knew that. And so that's the big thing that they that they use. But, but as far as uh, the, the sound being a completely atrocious was a fucking nightmare. The first song, Chip wore this one of these cop motorcycle helmets on his head for the show yeah. and a leather jacket and a leather jacket. And then the first, the middle of the first song, his fucking, he was sweating so bad and his eyeballs <laughs> were beating and shit. I'm like, I'm like, take the fucking helmet off, dude. You look like a fucking retard. He said, I can't, I can't get it off. because I can't get the buckle off. And I'm like, what the fuck? So he takes his jacket off, throws it to the side of the stage, it hits the outlet that that, that guy's uh, <laughs> that, that single tear was plugged into. Oh man! Oh, they're they're all gone. This is the first song. It's all gone. Everything's a nightmare. The guy just folds up the shirt I let him wear for the show. Walks right past me. He goes, "I'm done." He goes, "The shit's over." He goes, "He just fucked my my shit up." Oh. And uh, yeah, so then uh, I'm like, "What are we gonna do?" You know, what I mean, I couldn't even hear myself. The monitors were fucked. My amp was on the other side of the stage. It's like hay sticking out of the amps and shit. And fucking, uh, so what I did is I dropped the guitar and just went and did the, did the bar show. You know what I mean? Just got out in the, yeah. you know, got out in the crowd's faces and shit and dropped the guitar and just fronted it and all over the tables and shit and saved the show. It, it turned out, I mean, we went out for encores and all that shit. It, you know, I saved it, fucking bailed it out. And, uh, <clears throat> but after the first three, four songs, I didn't see this or know that, but Clive and, uh, the BMG people got up and walked out because it sounded so atrociously bad and uh, they just they didn't uh, know what the fuck happened and Herbie Brigham Scott Bray none of those guys have ever taken uh, owned up to that happening and I'm like what What do you think is, is more realistic of why Clive Davis would have left the, uh, the club because I handed him a dozen roses or because the band was a complete fucking disaster nightmare and he was humiliated I mean, so yeah, yeah. to this day, to this day, they they all point the finger at me in the stories of because uh, I gave Clive Davis roses, but that's why he fucking dropped the band. And I talked to him about it. He's like, Don, you going to do you think I get where I'm at by making decisions like that? I'm dropping uh, artists like you for handing uh, me a dozen roses. He said, I know you're just being Donnie and endearing and this and that, which it was. And uh, he's like. He said you, you, it wasn't the band that I envisioned, and and during that whole time we were shooting the right by the side video and all that shit, and all the label people are are casually giving me hints and stuff. Did you ever think about just going on your own, yeah. doing this on your own? And so it was obvious. Kind of looking back now, that they, that's what his plan was, you know. And so that's what happened. That's the true, honest to God story. And that, that rumor and that myth has taken on a life of its own, and rumors become fact. And now Donnie V fucking lost the fucking deal with Clive Davis because he had the roses. Did you ever? But, but not, nobody mentions all of that other shit. Right. 
But yeah, but, but did, I, did I you ever... was actually the only one that delivered. I was the only one that delivered. The crew, the management, everybody fucked up, and I saved the show. Right. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, man. <laughs> Spinal Tap has nothing on enough's enough. But no. but did you now when you talked to Clive afterwards? He never mentioned. Hey, did you ever think? Did he ever say? Did you ever think of going solo? He, he put his arm around me and walked me around his office, looking at the pictures of Janice and Charlotte and all those people on his wall. And he's sitting his arm around me, walking around, showing me all these. He goes, Donnie, he goes, you belong right up there with with all of us. You're you're just fucking in the same league as these guys. Says, but whenever you do something that isn't 100 percent natural, you start taking away from what you are, and, uh, and that's what he meant, like the the whole heavy metal thing and stuff like that, you know, yeah. and the fucking makeup and all that shit like that. And, and from that moment on, I, I got that message, and I never, I was always 100% myself. I yeah. Mean, oh, what, yeah. What you see is what you get. Well, you uh, know, yeah, I mean, and we talked about that, you know, from the time that Hollywood Squares, that tape was popping around to all the local musicians, and the time that you guys, uh, between that, you know, 1984, 1985, and 1989, when your first album came out and the video came out, people were surprised. And so we know that you, being a, a Southside popster, you know, raised on the Beatles and Motown, that this was a different, a different, uh, Genre for you, it was the glam rock metal that you guys were being forced into, and that's been that's been covered. But now you talked about the the great advice that Davis gave you. Were there other people, some heavy hitters that you've come across throughout the years that uh, maybe you gleaned some advice from? Well, uh, when we were showcasing uh, John Klagner, of course, he told you the speech he gave us because this was fucked up. This means Scott McGee. He was going to manage us originally, right after uh, we fired Pages. Me, the label, uh, uh, what's his face, Derek Sholin, got Doc McGee to uh, manage us. Well, we went to dinner, and the first thing Doc said was, "All of this, this video, all this shit, we all got to go." Because this is fuck you and like fucking bunch of fags and stuff, and he said, "Then fucks up your music and your image and stuff." And we're and uh, and uh, right after. Uh, that meeting the next couple of days he called and he, that's when they had that uh, that thing to Russia when all his bands were going to play Russia and shit yeah and so he, he was too he was too bogged down he was too loaded down with shit and his brother Scott took on Skid Row and he was just like uh, he, he just didn't have the time for it he handed this stuff to Herbie Herbert and Herbie had said the same thing about the glam and all that shit like that he had made that that you know, uh, suggestion or not suggestion, but nobody ever made made these calls. Like you should do, you got to do this. John Wagner said the band needs to be torn down, broken down to zero, and start over. And we didn't like the sound of that compared to Clive Davis' speech because uh, you know. And um, then Chrysalis came out one of our first showcases and said, "When I got in the in the limo after the show, he goes, dude." Guys just wearing jeans and a cowboy hat and shit. Then he goes, he goes, dude, you should have gone on stage like that. He says the way you guys went on stage with your look doesn't fit your sound and it doesn't make any sense. Right? If you would have gone up dressed like that, we'd be signing a deal right now. So yeah, it was a lot. You know, I mean, a lot of times, and uh, you know, it was a little. I we got rid of all that. You know, it, it still looked uh, flamboyant and uh, attractive and appealing. 
But after the first two videos, the makeup was gone. Yeah. All that spandex pants and all that shit was gone. I got rid of that immediately. You know, but you're, you, you're never get forgiven. I mean? Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the big, strange part of the Enough's Enough uh, mythology is you weren't a poison band. You weren't Cinderella. You were a whole different ball game. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's odd because the people that love you and know you, and they know that the music is astounding. And so you go back to David Letterman. I mean, how does it feel? You guys are on your second album. And David Letterman introduces you. And by the way, you were a band that was on his show twice. And a lot of bands that weren't, you know, around for decades never were on his show twice, you know? And And they said good things about it. He said, when it comes to rock and roll, these guys are the best. And and Paul Schaefer, of course, agreed with him. How did that, the the chills, did you even hear that when he said that? Or were you guys too busy getting ready to perform? I seen it when I watched... uh the taping later you know you shoot that at three in the afternoon yeah and then by the, by the time we were watching the show we were out at some club Derek and uh, Ricky had or whoever was in the band had gone back to Chicago we stayed out in New York tonight to uh, do some, some more shit the next day and, and watch it and we were at some big club watching the video or watching from Letterman uh, you know a bunch of chicks and stuff like that and we seen it and that's when I heard that I'm like well that's pretty fucking cool but I didn't <laughs> I didn't really take take that in, you know. When you say it right now, then it, then it has more impact than I ever had ever really, right? You know, really thought about that. That yeah, he did say that, but I just figured, you know, everybody said that shit to us all the time. I just figured it was pleasantry. Yeah, but you know, here's the thing: without you had you have you have momentum now because I said this the last time we spoke. You're surrounded by a great team. And there's momentum with people rediscovering not only the Enough's Enough catalog, but your solo work and your last your last album, Beautiful Things, which is stellar. And, of course, we got the the COVID shit that kind of slowed the momentum. But I think uh, you're in a great place to be rediscovered and to reach new audiences. It's, it's odd to hear my daughter, um, who's 18. Now, she's known your music forever, but she plays it for her other friends, and they're like, this is fantastic. And then they start going to Spotify. And so I think your music is timeless. And I think it's, uh, it's going to be a great year for you. If we can get past this pandemic, you got plans to uh, put a band together and get back out and maybe play some of the clubs. Yeah. What I, what I, what we really need and what I really need is somehow to hire a PR firm or something or a few independents or whatever enough to get, get the video and, uh, and the stuff out there past our bubble. Right. Just our fan base bubble and get it out there because, like you just said, basically, I haven't heard anybody that's, that's listened to any of my shit or any of the shit that ever didn't have anything but wonderful things to say about it. You know what I mean? Oh, Especially yeah. People that are hearing it for the first time, kids, this and that. Everybody's like, even old people, like, this is really, really nice. This is really great. Yeah. Your voice and all this and that shit. And so, yeah, so the whole key, the whole ticket is, is uh, exposure. I can get the exposure. You know, I still got my hair. I still uh, look halfway decent, a lot better than I deserve to look. And uh, I can pull it off. It's just we need the exposure. Yeah. <laughs> Although, because I'm not going, uh, not going out of bus again, going playing all these clubs for fucking to 100, 150 people or whatever. No. You know, uh, every night, and that's not not where it's at. I want to just do things that matter and that can that count, man. Right. And uh, 
you know, you don't sell CDs, but the exposure is where it's at. Right. Then you can go out and play good sized shows and, and, uh, you know, merchandising and make money and stuff. But did, did you heard the song, right? Oh yeah. Your new one. Yeah. That's going to be, uh, that's it. It was really different, you know, because, uh, I'm always expecting high standards and, and a good time and a great song. But uh, that it's it's like a it's a new and it's exactly what you were talking about writing something that's anthemic, and you know it can it has like a like a rock and roll all night party every day vibe to it, and it's definitely uh, it's definitely needed in this time because we're all waiting. Off. Huh? It, it starts right off. With yeah, it goes right into right it. Off with party time. Yeah, and I'm releasing the video and the single with my with my catalog flash drive on Fourth of July. And it just turns out the Fourth of July is when Chicago's opening back up yeah. with the pandemic shit, and uh, so that's party time. And when we get off the phone, I'm going to send you uh, the latest edit of the video, and you're going to freak the fuck out, dude. I dude, can't like, wait. Holy shit, this video is so fucking good. Shit's on the track, and he's in the video. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, re-re- I re-recorded it after uh, we did shot the video. I was like, I can't use this version. That's not for this. How great this video is, and plus. Uh, and I got once trip plays on it, it's amazing. Yeah. So that really brought it on. I got Roger to like keys and stuff on it, horns and shit. And so, uh, yeah, that's also got a chick background singers on that one. Um, this is, uh, the first time I've ever let anybody else sing, uh, besides beautiful things. My buddy Phil came and did some harmonies, but I really never had anybody else sing on any of my shit till this, uh, till this song. But you, when you see the video, you'll, you'll, I can't uh, wait. I mean, that should be, get like a beer commercial or something. You know, it, it, that in song, in shows or movies or something. That song, you know, it's like, I could see any booze company or something like that. You know, it's party time. Oh, it's yeah. Awesome. You know I mean? Oh, listen, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a perfect timing, too, because you're, re, you're releasing your, uh, your flash drive with all the stuff that you've done solo, and then, uh, and then that's when the, when the city uh, opens up. It's perfect, because it will be indeed party time. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get one other song finished uh, in the next two weeks and get that maybe released that uh, to build the momentum, start the momentum up because we're we're gonna start the advertising and stuff for the video and that pre-show party and all that stuff like that and be like a countdown, thirty-day yeah. countdown where we got this big poster of the video and like uh, be like a puzzle, you get another piece at each day to see what the puzzle is and then then the video and the and the in the collection I'm going to try to have one one other song <clears throat> pretty cool song that just to uh, fire up the grill you know what I mean yeah 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 I'm, yeah I'm, I'm not making albums anymore I'm just making fucking singles now and it's well, make any it makes sense to make a record with the amount of work that you do it's nice to be able to just pop stuff out when it's ready you know and, yeah minimum uh, 25 grand minimum to make a record that's crazy that's isn't it a minimum to make a good you know, with all the bargains and the deals and, and that I can get. Uh, DonnieV.com. People can go there. And uh, also your Facebook, your social media stuff, your Twitter. Hit that up. And uh, I want to go real quick through some of the songs that um, have blown me away. All of your songs are the soundtrack to my life. But I wanted to maybe get a little bit of backstory on a couple of songs. Now, I talk about this on the first album, For Now, the line... People like us don't ever change. We only get old and rearranged. And when there's no heart left on the stage, people like us, don't you ever change. That line has spoken to me 
many times throughout the years in this uh, wacky career. You know what I'm saying? That was uh, really the, I consider that sort of the the first uh, halfway decent lyric that I had written. You know, I'm embarrassed of a lot of the old lyrics, but that line was, yeah, I related to it. Dude, that was from home, you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah, just, that was real you know, stuff. Yeah, well, thank you. Now we got um, the Strength album. We're going on the Strength album. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go through every song you've ever written, but uh, Baby Loves You, it's got to be one of the most perfect pop songs ever written. You're written in less than five minutes. Yeah, well, it may have been written in less than five minutes, but, you know, and I know you've played it 10 billion times, so I don't know what it means to you, but people hear that and it's like, oh, that's that's as perfect a song as you can get in the world of uh, popdom. And then Goodbye is a song, there's no power ballad that from that era that comes close to that song. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that's incredible. So I'm gonna, uh, This is just about me now. I'm going to go through these uh, Animals with Human Intelligence. These days, for anybody that uh, can relate to the high schools that we went to, perfect song. Uh, one Step Closer to You, It Out Cheap uh, Trick, that, Cheap Trick. That, that, that's one of my songs where I, I aim it towards the ladies to make them... You know, dump dump that loser. You know, they're treating you, they're, treat, they're treating you bad. You know, they shouldn't be treating you bad yeah. like that. No, I think you know the the chicks are you know thinking about me. <laughs> right, rock and world, which yeah. was my uh, radio show opening for uh, many years at the Cat, the legendary Cat radio station. Uh, that's a great rocker. Thank you. I'm going to go on here now. Okay, so the Hollywood Squares cassette that was popping around came out as 1985. And now, how old were you when you wrote those songs on 1985? You're like in your teens, right? Um, well, see, I, I'm looking at the time frame and the days for the years now, and I, I remember being younger than than I w- actually was. Um, in '85, I was I should have graduated high school in in uh, in '82. Uh, yeah, I should have been in the class of '82. So. Three years after, what do you usually eighteen when you graduate? Yeah, so I, so like, I was, guess I was like twenty. Twenty, I think when when we did that, yeah, yeah, we did those recordings, and because uh, I think I was twenty two when uh, when we seen the new thing video on MTV. Okay, and then okay, yeah. so I I, uh, I the first song I hear, I'm I'm playing drums in a band on Archer Avenue. We're in uh, the bottom of a bar basement practicing our our songs. And my buddy Mark DeRoba comes downstairs and says, hey, you know, uh, Gino is in a new band. And he goes, you got to hear this tape. And he goes, listen to this. And the first song he plays for me is Fingers on it, knocks me out. And I fell in love with your voice. I'm like, oh, we got to We got to see these guys. We got to go see them. And I knew Chip was in another band because I knew Chip because his hair was like real high and he was very flamboyant and he wore like a satin. Was he in a band called Champion or We're Staying or something We're like that? Staying. We're staying. When I was a little kid, yeah, thirteen or fourteen, I used to go. Uh, whenever they played at like the VFW Hall or somewhere where you could get in when you're young, yeah, or the rec center, I would go see them because because uh, um, the, the singer of that band was one of my good buddies, his big brother, and so uh, that's how I was turned on to the band. But I went and seen them, and I just fucking was just hooked on Chip. I was like, this guy is a fucking you know, yeah, he's a rock star, yeah. He was a lot, lot cooler looking, and uh, his moves and all that shit. His whole character was so much cooler 
before enough's enough. <laughs> that it was. It was more natural. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, then he started trying too hard and and trying to uh, keep one foot in the spotlight all the time. You know what I mean? And instead of letting people focus on the singer, you know, it's like putting his spray on everything. But yeah, I I, I was uh, I used to be a big fan of him. Yeah, in that band, they a lot of good songs. And I used to see Gino in uh, a band called Jet. He used to play in. They used to right. play. They used to play around. So I knew we had to see these guys. And I wanted to say something about uh, okay. So 1985, day by day, I'll be the one to love you, Catholic girls, all timeless classics. But let me tell you something about the song Marie. When I, when I was I, just going to say that was my favorite one. On it. When I, I teach, when, when I when I talk to people about music, I say okay, songwriting 101. You listen to the song Marie, and the bridge on that song reminds me of, not that it sounds like it, but it reminds me of the bridge on the Four Tops Bernadette because it's it takes you to another level of the song. They don't sound alike. They're not the same melody. But if you listen to Bernadette and they have this bridge that comes in the middle of the song and just kicks it into a whole new level and brings the story of the song, it's the same thing with Marie. When you hit that... Uh, you know, our love is like a hot air balloon. When you hit that bridge, it's like, what the f And you were a kid when you were writing these songs. Well, like I told you before, these I follow the song. I let it tell me what it wants to be and where it wants to go. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, and it's really pretty obvious to me, and that's where that one went. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I'll, t I'll tell you something between you and me. I was a uh, And uh, listen to the words <laughs> for that song, and then... And then Keep that in mind, and then listen to the words again to that song. <laughs> wow! And, and so this is on this is on the podcast now. You know that. No, you don't want to say that. You can edit that out. I'll have to edit that out. Okay. Yeah. Good lord! Yeah, probably, probably be a good idea. Right? No, you I would do that. Trying, yeah, probably not. Trying I, to be friends again. Trying to be friends again. Yeah, that's probably not going to help. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So that's where that song came from. Well, a lot of editing you're leaving me with here, but okay. <laughs> All right, now Donnie, uh, aroused, aroused, aroused. Yeah, that's another song. You know what? Oh wow, <laughs> craziness! Wow. All right, so let let let's move on to tweak a couple of songs I want to talk to you about. Uh, Stone, which was opening the album, and and it opened your shows for a while. Kind of set the tone for the. It was a kind of a dark masterpiece that album. Yeah. Well, I told you how that came to be. That record, right? What tweak? It was uh, yeah, tweak and and seven were the were the same the same uh, basically big uh, time period, the same sort of session. I after the animals record, after all that shit went down with Clive and stuff, I I made up my mind that I'm done with enough enough. I need to lose this fucking stigmatism. I need to lose these fuckers treating me like this. So nothing's gonna happen. I need to lose that name and uh, went in into the studio. Remember dress rehearsal, Don Grayless? Yeah. Yeah, well, I went over to his place, and he had a little eight-track machine. And uh, Ricky, I took Ricky over, and just started writing and recording all these songs, which was most of it. The tweet record and, and all of seven. And then the, and Chip and Brigham heard it and everything. And, and naturally, out of necessity, I ended up having to go back enough and enough. They had a small deal for it and shit, and they could go songs. But Stone was one that we had, like, that's one that we think we wrote on stage. There's yeah. a couple of those, like Love Song, Stone, a few of those. Yeah. Well, you know, My Dear Dream, like if that was on a Paul McCartney or Queen album, it would be a classic rock staple. You know, if it was written in the 70s, yeah, was, that was incredible. 
those were my both the, the two influences that I had for writing that song. Uh, it shows, but it, it's, it's a beautiful song. And then there's, you know, when I go back to your songwriting, how am I supposed to write a love song? The way, you know, there's a couple of songs that you do this on where you, you, um, how am I supposed to write a love song and Baby, You're the Greatest from the uh, Paraphernalia album. You do this thing where you stretch out and build tension in the chorus. That's amazing. And I think songwriters, especially aspiring songwriters, need to listen to those two songs because where you think the chorus is coming in, it doesn't. You kind of push it farther and farther, and you build this tension. And it's those are, I mean, two different albums, Tweaked and Paraphernalia. But how am I supposed to write a love song and Baby, You're the Greatest? Just monster epics. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, like I said, thank the songs, because like I said, they just they come through you. They, want to be, they, yeah. they, they tell me where they want to go. I follow the songs, and that's where they lead. I remember... Uh, Chip calling me and saying, you got to come over and hear this new stuff we got. And he played Wheels for me. And that, again, that was from the Seven album. That was just, uh, I was like, what? The, you know, this is a band that's more consistent than any other band, I think, that I've ever listened to. I mean, we talked about this earlier. No fillers, no taking a shortcut, no putting two hits on an album and then just uh, half-assed, you know, half-written songs for the rest of it like so many bands have done. But uh, I heard Wheels and I was like, oh, man, this is one. Now, from that same album, Seven, You and I was uh, the wedding song for my first marriage. Now, that marriage crashed and burned, but I don't think it was the song's fault. I'm not sure. I sang that at Chip's, uh, Chip's wedding re- uh, reception. Okay, so this might be a, they, cursed, a cursed wedding song, I'm thinking. Yeah, they asked me to sing that. I always thought that was a very cool song. Beautiful. Um, you know, if you got a really fucked up asshole of a girlfriend, they're a gold mine for writing songs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. so, uh, but uh, I never, I just always took it for granted. I never stopped to think that enough would be any shitty. I tried to write a shitty song once. I couldn't do it. Do you, but, remember, uh, do you remember the first song you wrote when you were young, really young? Yeah, yeah, it was called... Uh, so close and far away. I was thinking of tracking it because it's actually a really, really good song. I was thinking about that the other day. Like, my very first song was really good. Yeah, needs and, to be uh, done. So I'm thinking about tracking it, but I don't think about that at the time. I just think, well, I don't like this idea. I don't like this. Oh, this is another great idea. Yeah, I'm just going to keep filling the record up. You know, because every song you hear on the record, there's four or five that I didn't, didn't consider good enough. Right. You know, to put, to put in that spot. So, you know, I had a lot of time, you know, you're partying like I did and stuff. You spend a lot of time isolated and alone. Yeah. Um, and I would vent, and that's how I'd find consolation, be consoled in my own music and stuff. And, and so, I, yeah, I would write, like, the whole paraphernalia record. I wrote most of that in the bus that one night. And I yeah. told you, Chip stole my blow and shit. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote, the, wrote the, most of that record in one night. In wow. One, one, bus, one bus trip from one town to the next, like, at least all of the the main ideas to the song. Beautiful. And I was like, as soon as I'd finish one, I'd be like, wow, it was great. And I'd go to set the guitar down and I hear this other idea in my head. I pick it right back up and go, oh my God, there's another one. And Ricky was sitting there with me too the whole time. He's like, after we got about the third or the fourth one, he's like, dude, what the fuck? Yeah. Because you're a, you're a machine. I go, it's, I am a machine, but that's, they're coming. When, yeah. uh, when they're when they're in the air and, they, and they're, pre- they're presented to me from where whatever's presenting them to me, you have to get out the, no matter what you're doing, it's time to uh, get to work. Uh, listen, it's a stunning output. Anybody who loves music, anybody who has followed your career, anybody who cares about artistry and craftsmanship, 
your songwriting is fucking stunning. Thank you. You know, a song like Someday, you know, one of your beautiful personal songs. And then you close that album out with Loser of the World. There's an interesting story behind that, too. Where'd you just... Chip yeah. told me that you were just banging away on the piano, and he was like, oh, wait, 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 what are you doing? And you were just fiddling around, and he's like, we got to roll tape on this. I was pretty down. It was pretty much one of my a really low point, and I was, I was uh, really down on myself. We were in there tracking something else, and I was just out in the live room playing the piano. Um, and we were tracking uh, that song, uh, Falling in Love Again. We were doing using the piano. Okay. And I think that's the piano song on there. And so I was just out messing around and came up with that song. And it came really quickly and stuff. So I started, uh, I was like, hey, check this song out. And they were just listening to it from the, in the control room. You know, everything was mic'd up and shit. And so I just played it by myself and sang it. You know, within the first 20 minutes, it took me, you know, write some lyrics and stuff. And I really liked it. And, and you can hear me at the very end. Actually, I didn't know they were recording it. They recorded it. That's one take. Uh, piano and uh, vocal at the same time. Uh, I didn't even know it was being recorded. It was just one take the first time that I was playing that song all the way through. Wow. At the very end, the very end, you can hear on the last note was, uh, I'm choked up. I was crying. My tears running down my eyes by the end of that song. It's 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 stunning. It's, you know. And then you went, we went on to 10, the album with There Goes My Heart, which uh, kicked off the album. Didn't let, that whole album... It doesn't let up from the beginning to end. That's that's a great collection of songs, and um, you know. And then I recently revisited "Welcome to Blue Island," and you know, it's another great collection of songs. Saturdays on there, can't wait. Some rocking tunes, and then great fucking album. Yeah, it's and it's one of those albums that you're like, the more you listen to it, because towards the end of that album, the last portion has like some experimental tunes that kind of blend together. It's almost like an Abbey Road medley thing. It's just terrific. Well, that was that that whole piece was one of the reasons that that I'd left the band because uh this was happening to me more and more of uh it, you know the chip sneaking into the studios without me trying to uh I don't know some kind of competitive nature or something and and he'd go in to mix the fucking song. The songs that I wrote the songs that I laid all the parts out and I know what's going to go where and I know what needs to be muted here and muted there and stuff. It's like if I'm playing a certain instrument, I'll play it all the way through because I know what parts are going to take and what, time, what parts we're not going to take, but I play it all the way through for options and stuff. And so he did that for that sentimental journey thing. And the way the song is supposed to start out is like all the way through, one whole time through it, it was, it's an acoustic piece. Um, written in a weird tuning, the same tuning as Rain Song. And uh, and the whole thing goes through one time, all just on acoustic guitar, and it sounds really fucking cool. And all that other stuff was uh, was for options and shit. And then it goes into the other thing. And so what happens, he goes in and mixes it without me. And, um, and, just, and, and I gave him like maybe a notebook pad full of instructions for how to, t- what to do with that one, how to mix that one. And, um, it's just I never said anything. He fucking completely just put everything up in the mix, and it sound, it ruined it, and it sounds like a big pile of fucking shit. I can't even listen to it. I'm like, this is, the fans got to hate this, you know? And the same thing with, uh, we were originally going to call the record um, The Sun because of uh, for, cause we were going to put it out in Japan. So I figured yeah. a big red sun on the cover and call it The Sun. <clears throat> and that was that one, that song, Here Comes the Sun or whatever. Yeah, yeah, The Sun. And, uh, and then when I when they said that Japan wouldn't like the 
us using their flag on the cover of our record. I said, well, then I was coming back from a crack run and, and from Robbins coming into Blue Island, there's this sign that says, welcome to Blue Island. It's got 80 bullet holes in it and shit. It's all tore up and busted <laughs> apart. And I go, that's the fucking title of the record. Welcome to Blue Island. Yeah. And so Chip goes, takes the sun, has somebody, some cartoon artist, go and make a fucking sun album cover, calls it the Welcome to Blue Island. It makes absolutely no fucking sense. And it's shit like that. Just stupid fucking shit because he wasn't the artist. I was the artist. He was, you know, what, what he did. And just, you know, it's like, let the guys that are strongest do the job that they're strongest at. And because if you're not, if you're not uh, showing your strength, you're showing your weaknesses. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what he do all the time. And it just drove me so fucking crazy to the point where I couldn't take anymore. The creative, creatively, I'm being completely cock blocked. And so that's when I, first time I left. And, um, yeah, so I mean that album really would have been a great album if it weren't for the way it was mixed and and all the fuckery that went on in that record. Welcome to Lyle, and I I think each record got stronger all the way through to Dissonance. Yeah, Dissonance. Every, every, everyone evolved and went to a more mature and more and just uh, you know, just I hate to say it, but it's like the Beatles did. Each record gets better and better and stuff as as I'm learning and getting there and yeah. And uh, Welcome to Blue Island just took a big dick in the ass because of all that shit. And it's really a strong and it's a great record. It is a great it record. A real, real weird, real, real weird overtone with the way it was mixed and, and the way the songs were. Like, like, if something's called The Overture, where do you put The Overture? Right, at the beginning, yeah. right. I, uh... Right, where's The Overture on the record? Yeah, okay, so I, I, I noticed <laughs> that too when it's like in the middle of the record. Yeah, it just, yeah. That's, that's the stupid fucking kind of shit. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's the Paul out they write the jokes about. He really is, and he thinks he's a genius, but I'm like, dude, what the fuck? And I don't ever find out any of this stuff until it's until I'm holding it in my hand, until it's etched in stone. That's when, so I'm never giving the choices. It's like taking all my choices away from me, wrecking all my creative vision, all of this shit, and then treating me like the low man on the totem pole, the big piece of shit, because I fucking party and I'm medicating my anxiety and my addictions and stuff and just alienating me as opposed to being helping me. You know what yeah. I mean? And then do that and do that all kind of shit. I just had it. I said, fuck you, man. I'm done with you. And then he went off and just put Monaco and went out and played and, and drove the fucking value in the band down to 300 bucks a show again. Yeah, it was a and strange took, time. You know, it was a strange it time. Took, it took a lot of work to get us back up to making some money again once I got back in like six years later. And then that happened again. He did it again. Now it's so devalued. Now, after what he's been doing the last couple of years, nobody really want to go out and see that anymore. You know, it's the same set list as all those great songs with a shitty singer. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And the reasons, you know, there's a lot of reasons that I'd left, but there's a lot of reasons that he wanted to work alone too, because you know, I was I was difficult uh, because of all the shit that was going down because of the way what he was doing to things and to putting his name on everything and taking all the credit for everything. Yeah. And it drove me fucking nuts. And so I let him hear about it. You know what I mean? And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? And then plus the partying and stuff. And, you know, so that, you know, it's just, there's a big wedge there. And, uh, but I mean, at this point now, I've never really worked with him except back in the first record though, 1985 was the only time I ever worked with him where I was, wasn't all fucked up on drugs and shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? And but, so yeah, that's and why I, 
You know, and you talk about your anxiety, and I know walking down memory lane with you, it, there's some triggers there, you know. But, you know, you guys are in a good place now, and, and that's good. Yeah, well, we're, it's all because of me. He hasn't bent over one one bit, you know. He went and, he went and uh, trademarked when I was in rehab, went and, and trademarked the name and his and his name only. He owns the whole Enough's Enough name. He owns, uh, took over, you know, he put, started putting out records as Enough's Enough shit like that all that stuff and then I see a, somebody sends me a movie trailer where he's taking my vocals out of Fly High Michelle puts Fly High Michelle in some shitty B movie with him singing starring in this movie and I'm like what the fuck all this shit it just it just hit, went too far and um, and then with the trademarking where I wasn't allowed to go play as enough enough I wasn't allowed to be in the van and I wasn't allowed to play as enough enough when I'm like if anybody should get to use that, it would be me, the guy that wrote and sang all the songs. You know what I mean? Those are your songs, yeah. But but that's why I had a real a bug in my ass about him. But I'm the one that basically just sucked it and and let. It, but he, what he doesn't know, oh, I can't tell you this on the podcast. <laughs> no, well, I got I got three and a half hours now with you, so. Um... And, and and he feels justified in all of this stuff, and it's like, well, you know, you didn't deserve the fucking name. I deserved it. I've been working in this man like. Dude, what difference does that make? I fucking wrote it all. I'm the voice that you hear on those records. I, it's what sold it. It's why fucking Kiss and those and Aerosmith and those guys love the band. I could you. Yeah. You know, you're a great bass player. You fucking, it's because of me. You know, and you take that off the fucking granted and you take it and run. It's like, you, it's just like you stole my name. You know what I mean? It's like, like if somebody came home from rehab and someone had, and his partner, you started a company, right? You, you built it from scratch. You built it from, built it up on your own brains and this and that and a successful company and then you go to get take some time off to, to repair yourself and shit and come back and your partner has moved into your house he's now fucking your wife your kids are calling him dad he's got your bank account you and you can't use anything you can't live there you don't get to see your kids you don't get your credit cards your bank account or your business your company that's that's the comparison to what He's done to me. But, but from, a from a publishing standpoint, I mean, how can, you know, you, you wrote those songs. So if someone's out there making money on your songs, how does that, how, how can that be without compensation for you? See, there's a, that's an issue that we didn't have proper management. These songs have never, all of that publishing and stuff had, had, had basically, uh, I own all my publishing. We own all our own publishing. You know I mean? I, I can't take the stuff back from the chip stuff and uh, take his name off things, but I have been adjusting it at ASCAP and things like that, you know, and, uh, but we got all our own publishing, uh, we, the, except for the first two records we did with, uh, same thing, why we don't have the records, we don't have the publishing for that either, but we'll have those back next year. But I got all of my own publishing, but we did do a publishing deal with EMI for like five records worth of shit right after the Arista thing, and, um, and they only gave us like, I don't know, 50 or something grand advance or whatever. And they never did a thing. They never worked anything. They didn't fucking, just our song getting in Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe threw us a break. That song right there generated $350,000 uh, for that I should have got a check for 350 grand. And, and they never fucking, they dropped the ball and I didn't get shit on that. Mm -hmm. And then they claimed that our re we hadn't recouped in all these years. But I'm like, you can't fucking, Motherfucking lying 
scumbag, you know, and it's all because I wasn't protected. I didn't have anybody looking out for me and uh, doing proper business. And so now it's, and, and I wasn't in any shape to consistently, I suck at business to begin with, but I wasn't in any kind of shape to, uh, but I figured, you know, I'm doing all this. I figured the people around me, well, at least, uh, why would they fucking steal and rip me off or right. give me bad advice and stuff? Because, you know, it's, I'm their golden goose. Yeah. But not, that, that wasn't how they were all looking at it. They all fucked me completely. Completely fucked me. All of them. Chip, Brigham, everybody. Vicky Fox. The only one that didn't was Derek. You know? But that's just the way it is. All these Vicky Fox? How does he? Uh, well, Vicky Fox didn't write any of the songs. Mm-mm. But he went, and, when he left the band, he went and, uh, you know, we had ASCAP, so he went over to BMI and filed uh, copyrights on, um, like, 20 songs, including Innocence and stuff, that he was half writer and shit, and that claiming that I ripped him off and stuff like that. He never wrote one fucking song. He never brought one thing down. Jesus. Went and did that, and I just found this out recently, that seeing his name on all this shit, I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? That? He's been collecting... Uh, BM, BMG uh, or BMI he's been collecting royalties and stuff since he left the band on all my songs and I just had him had him pulled off and, and I'm trying to fucking uh, make him liable for that shit yeah. you know he made money through all his years and he fucking did that it's stealing he's, why is he just getting away with this why is he just you know it's just a it's just a fucking piece of shit that guy is Every band he's ever been in, he's done nothing but steal, and, and, and they, everyone says the same thing about him. Well, you know, I, the thing that puzzles me about him, I never really knew him. Uh, I mean, I met him a few times. I knew Nobody Ricky. Nobody does. Ricky Parent was a, was a gentleman and a sweetheart and a lovable guy, and I, and I loved Ricky. But yep. Vicky, um, for as much talent as he has as a drummer, his career didn't really go anywhere after you guys. Because of, his, because of what he does to bands. Yeah. Stuff. His name became Mud, and then he got in at Veronica's and her two sisters, and he fucking pitted them against each other by fucking the both of them. And so that's the way he is. And he, nobody knows Vicky Fox because he's a snake and a complete fucking uh, you know scumbag. Just had his really has his shit together when it comes to his look and his playing and stuff. But no, I mean, there's you know the guy fucking left enough's enough for Vince Neil band that was obviously going to be a short time thing because of course he was going back to Motley Crue eventually. Right, right. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so Vic Ringo is, is Tommy Lee <laughs> or Ricky Rocket, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not a hell of a lot. He's, his drumming on those records is, is very adequate. It's, it's like the drum machine. You know well, I mean? yeah, he, he's not Steve Gadd. I'm just saying he was a showman and he could play. And so yeah. I would have just thought that, you know, Someone would have picked them up, but but I saw the Veronicas. I'm like, I don't even know who the hell the Veronicas are. What is the Veronicas? You know, and then well, they they were signed to Disney or something like that. So he made some money, and they they were you know little kids band. Oh, okay. Like that. But he right. broke that band up. He got in a warrant. Fucking stole all of their equipment. He got in fucking uh, the Vince Neil thing. Stole all of their equipment. Oh, and uh, right. just keeps going on. Now some microphone company got endorsed, and he stole all their shit. He's just, just, just the way he is, and and it's and it's fucked up because his wife is multi multi millionaire. He has fucking um, office over uh, sun, on Sunset. You know, he has a mansion and another fucking house and this and that. And her her parents are plastic surgeons and shit. And he gets all his free plastic surgeries. There's no reason <laughs> for him. There's no reason for him to have to do that fucking shit. No. And he does it because that's just what kind of a human being he is. And so. That's why you never knew him or anything. But his drumming, there was nothing great about his drumming. There was no feel. 
any grooves or anything like right. that like he had. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I hey, I thought Bo was a great drummer. I haven't seen him in a while. He was the he was the best drummer I've been in enough tonight. Yeah, he was a monster. Except for the guy the, the guy that played on the dissonance record, Vinny Castaldo. Yeah. Before we made the record in his studio. He's a great drummer too. Monster, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go to Dissonance real quick. Uh, the title track, amazing. The whole album's amazing. High is fantastic. And one of my favorite songs, another slice of pop perfection, is uh, Joni Lynn, one of your personal songs. That's how yeah, you, you know, huh? I know why you wrote it, but, I mean, that, listen, that's a that's a perfect rock and roll song. Well, here's another example of, uh, so I got conned into making a new record coming back to the band after a VH1 special. I hadn't been in for six years, and I get a call. VH1 wants to do a special on us. Will you come back and, and play on this? So I came and did that special, and then it turned into a the guy's got a backer that wants to make a new Enough Enough record. And uh, so they were pulling fast ones. They were going to record some of the songs with me, some of them with John Monaco, which I didn't know. They didn't tell me that shit. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a complete catastrophe. And I left, and I said, fuck you guys. I said, this is this is the same bullshit. I go, go fuck yourself. I'm done with this. And I went home and left my wife and um, I was staying with some other guys out in California and I just, all of a sudden these songs started started churning out of me. I met a new chick. All of a sudden like Dissonance, Altered States, Joni Lynn, Lazy Daisy, um, what else, Roll Away. Yeah. All those songs started, started pouring out. And so I went out there on my own, took the bus back out to Vegas and me and Vinny made that whole record. And then Chip comes out after, you know, the guy stops and hears it and Chip's right back out there. And, uh, you know, and, and the writing credits on the record say all songs written by Enough's Enough. <laughs> and I wrote the whole goddamn, it's basically a solo record with him playing bass in it. Oh, man. That's, That's the kind of shit. That's the kind of shit, but he's my big brother. I still love him more than I hate him. I spent all the greatest things I've ever done were with him all the worst things at times I've been through basically with him and he you know he shaped me up and fast tracked me to being to being um, you know in the pro league and he had a lot to do with that shit and it had it not been for some kind of uh, competitive vanity or ego thing or something like that that it should have been a great beautiful relationship and it was uh, for the most part but then the other stuff it's like I'm a big asshole for bringing this other shit that I just told you, all this stuff. I'm not out of line for fucking saying this shit. You know what I mean? I'm supposed right. to just take all this and, and not do nothing about it. And so this is the actual truth, but I want to love them. I think that if, he's gonna, if enough enough's going to be out playing, it should be with me singing. You know what I mean? And I would do it under the right circumstances, you know? Mm -hmm. But he's not interested in that at all. He doesn't, he doesn't want one thing... His agenda is 100% for himself. The fans don't want to hear him singing. The fans don't want to hear the Diamond Boy record. And then that next piece of shit that came after it, that's not what they want to hear. They want to hear what they, they grow, they've known to love and shit. Right. Which is, uh, you know, look at, I mean, his two records, Enough Enough records, wouldn't have sucked so bad if it weren't for the, the 12 predecessors. <laughs> well, that that's the situation, you know. And then, and then you come out with Beautiful Things, which is a, a flipping masterpiece it's like holy cow so now we're going to solo albums just enough wrapped around my middle finger the white album beautiful things these are and this and more are going to be released july 4th correct 
Yeah, all on all on a flash drive. Those those five studio records, extra strength, um, just enough. Yeah, white album wrapped around my middle finger and beautiful things, and then a couple new singles, and then um, about five records worth of uh, demos and shit that I I had uh, you know released by, by myself and stuff independently or uh, through my uh, fan club that I had for a while, and so there's going to be like ten records worth of shit in there plus videos and pictures and all kinds of shit so it's, a, it's gonna be a great deal for, for 100 blocks uh, I'm looking forward to uh, spending a lot of time yeah. with it Donnie V with us my favorite singer songwriter of all time and uh, a wow. dear, a dear friend oh you are I, I think about you know the music that has just made me come to you know get choked up listening to this stuff and it's it hasn't been one or two songs it's been a, it's been a lifetime of uh, friendship and and following your career and I'll tell you good things are on the horizon get you back out there playing and uh, get the Donnie V brand and the Donnie V band solidified to where it needs to be alright real quick we do a thing called Randomonium on the program a movie that Donnie V could watch anytime get him to the Greek okay alright and if you could collaborate with any living artist on a song who would it be living artist a living artist uh, hmm maybe uh Jimmy Page, or uh, maybe I'd, I'd love to do something with McCartney. There you go. I think uh, I think that it could make an, a new great McCartney song. You know? Oh yeah, vocals would sound would sound good together. And I really I'm not impressed with uh, most of the shit he's done since uh, Wings. You know, and um, yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, and it sounds really pompous and egotistical. I think I'm kicking McCartney's ass now. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing. Like people, people would always say to me, you know, and I love Cheap Trick. They would say, "Oh, enough's enough." They're kind of like Cheap Trick, and I said, "You know, enough's enough." Far out, Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick, a long time ago. You know, and I love well, Cheap Trick. Robin, I love them. You know, Robin, that's my favorite fucking singer. Yeah, he's Robin amazing. Danny, he can do anything. But from the songwriting yeah. and the output, uh, there's there's no comparison to me. Um, well, he was a, they were big fans of us too. Yeah. You know, a book that had a profound impact on your life. A book. Yeah. Oh, probably the first book that I ever read was, uh, was that, that little, that thin little book called Anthem by Ann Rand. Yeah. Um, that's, that's when somebody was turning me on to the 2112 record rush. And I wasn't into anything that wasn't like my standard style of pop. I didn't like heavy stuff or rush or any of that until I read that little book. And then I listened to the record, and that led me into uh, the whole adding uh, different, you know, expanding my, uh, expanding my, uh, I don't know, talents or whatever it yeah. was to uh, not, you know, to not just be this one thing. No compromise. So, yeah. so I would say that book, that was pretty, uh, pretty, you know, the, the very first first book I read, my stepfather, I found it in the bathroom, it was called Jailbirds in the Backseat. It was a fucking... <laughs> Well, porno book, and uh, <laughs> I remember reading that. That's when I got my first heart on. So okay, so somewhere, <laughs> so be pretty... <laughs> somewhere between a pocketbook, a porno, and Ayn Rand's anthem, we have uh, the literary world of Donnie V. I love it, and and, <laughs> and you know, it's funny about Ayn Rand's anthem. I buy that book for all the kids in my life once they become teenagers because it gives you a sense of individualism that I think is it's, considerably it's lacking happening now. Yeah, well, it's happening now. Isn't it's happening now. Crazy? It's crazy. Yeah. And uh, Donnie V, you know I love you, man, and I appreciate you giving us all this time. Right, what's your name again? Mike. <laughs> Mike Tomano, thank you so much for thinking of me and still caring about me after all these years, and uh, I really appreciate it. All, all right, right, brother. Thank you so much.
to thank Donatus Ramanaskas for joining us. Lithuanian, ska, punk, polka, and beyond lives on with the great band Dead Freddy. And it's always a pleasure to hang with the king of power pop, Donnie V. Join us next week when we chat with jazz legend Ron Carter. And until then, you go out there and have your best week ever. Thanks so much for listening. Are you somewhere feeling lonely? Or someone loving you? Michael, talk to me. Come in, Mike.